0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Some of these things, I think, seem like radical ideas when you talk to people. But if we were more thoughtful about about what work is, then we wouldn't have innovation crises in work because people would have space to think about stuff and to come (laughs) up with innovations.
2: Totally. Totally. You know how people talk about how like, oh, my best ideas come to me in the shower. In the shower, of course. The reason they come to you in the shower, yes, is also because your phone's not there, right? Like you right. are just hanging out with your own mind.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Digman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: We are also joined today by Anne Helen Peterson, the author of Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, and the writer and creator of the Substack newsletter, of which we are big fans, Culture Study. Anne, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here today.
0: On today's episode, we're going to talk about burnout in particular and work culture in general. But before we get into that, we will check in, as we always do.
1: We will check in. Check-in rounds are a great way to address burnout because they can give us a temperature of the group. And if we're sensing that nobody is really present, check-in round can give us data as to whether that's actually true. Mm. So our check-in question for today is, what are your three favorite smells? And I will go first because I wrote this question. So my number one favorite smell on earth is the smell of the ocean when it's like, I love the smell of salt water, especially blowing through a window. My number two favorite smell is the smell of my dog Rosie when she wakes up in the morning because she smells like baking bread. And my number three favorite smell is the smell of my mom's house. It smells like laundry and my childhood. And when I open the door, I'm just like, ah, so relaxed. That's it. Erin, what about you?
0: So if I were snoring right now, then you'd know we have a burnout problem. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, first one out of the gate, I will plus one ocean. I'm definitely cut from the same cloth there. I would then add anything with cinnamon in it or on it. And Mm -hmm. probably at the pinnacle of that class would be cinnamon rolls. Nice. And then the third thing would be my son's hair.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Very cool.
0: Yes.
2: My number one, these are going to be pretty summer influenced right now. (laughs) So my number one, it's lilac season right now in Montana where I live. And they're just all over the place, I think, because they're like one of the few (laughs) flowering trees that can really thrive here. So I love lilacs just kind of wafting in from every direction. I love the smell of ponderosa pines, which are Mm. also all over here. And I love... The smell of uh, tomatoes, like tomato plants. It's a very distinct Mm. smell. It is. But it just reminds me of gardening, which is one of my favorite burnout combating
1: activities.
0: (laughs) I want to do a last minute write-in of like freshly cut pine. Because yeah, it's Mm. got me thinking about Christmas trees. And yeah, that's definitely amazing.
1: Nice. So we're going to talk a lot about burnout today and work culture more broadly. Let's just start by mapping the territory. So Anne, in Can't Even, you talk about a multi-pronged definition of burnout. It's not a full-blown breakdown, but it is, as you say, an occupational phenomenon of chronic work stress. And it's a symptom of structural things, of systemic collapse. Tell us a little bit about how you got to that understanding um, and that definition.
2: Well, I think I didn't understand burnout at all until I started experiencing it and really denied that I was burnt out in any capacity. Mm -hmm. I really understood burnout this is pre-pandemic, I really understood burnout as something that happened to like war correspondents and doctors, Mm. right? (laughs) People who are working in fields where it is very, the stress is very legible and the accumulating stress. And this is often how burnout is represented or has historically been represented in the literature is that you do hit a wall. Like people break down, people quit their jobs, people lie in bed, And my experience was much more of this, like, you hit the wall and then you scale the wall and then you just keep going. Mm -hmm. And I think that that experience, you know, I spent a lot of time when my article on burnout first came out at the beginning of 2019, I spent a lot of time describing what I was trying to talk about. And people would say, oh, oh, yes, I I understand what you're talking about now. But as soon as the pandemic hit, (laughs) or probably like (laughs) one month into the pandemic, there was no need to explain, right? People understood absolutely what I was talking about. And I think it's this mix of the feeling that you need to be working all the time and that you're never doing enough work and that ultimate productivity is always your goal, mashed up against... Overarching precarity, and that can take any number of forms and any amount of severity. I think that there are people who have hundred thousand dollars in their bank account who still feel precarity on an everyday basis, whether or not like they actually could be kicked out of their houses tomorrow and and be living in their cars. Like that, that's not necessarily true, but there is this feeling that like the bottom's going to drop out, and this is where I speak a lot about the millennial experience, which is so shaded by entering the workplace in the aftermath of the great recession Uh and the feeling that like, no matter how much you work, no matter how much you prepare, whatever your trajectory is, that everything could also fall to pieces at any second for yourself, for your parents, for your extended family, for your peers. The, the World Health Organization really refers to burnout as an occupational hazard. But I think in the United States in particular, that it extends beyond just how you think about your work. Like it is this feeling that your entire life is a to-do list that you have to transform into productive material at all times.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That brought up a couple of questions for me. So one is your description of someone who has a lot of financial stability or net still experiencing this, I've seen that in a lot of places. I've worked in the kinds of companies, you know, in in financial services where there is no one who has, who is not getting their basic needs met by their compensation, <laughs> right. et cetera. Yeah. And right. so I just wanted to to dive a little bit further into that because to me, as someone who has experienced burnout personally and seen it really, you know, significantly in large systems, there is a significant aspect of it that's not really rational. Like the call and compunction to keep doing and producing, et cetera, is often not based on an actual material need or even a real external expectation. And yet it happens all the time. So like, why is that?
2: I mean, a lot of
0: reasons, (laughs) but
1: so to backtrack just a little bit, you know, they've shown
2: that people who are experiencing homelessness, for example, right? Like they are, they are in a, a sort of burnout that is hard maybe for people who have white collar burnout to understand. Mm-hmm. It is really, really difficult when you don't have resources, when you don't have stability in any form, when you don't know when your next meal is going to arrive or where you're going to sleep, to make the sort of long-term decisions that are beneficial or that lead to stability. And this is why, like one of the the best ways to help people who don't have homes is to just give them the sort of money and stability that allows them to start essentially planning, right? right? And I think you see a less extreme example of that for people who are working poor and who are taking out payday loans and are constantly looking for childcare and trying to find odd jobs. If you can find some sort of consistency, add some sort of Consistency to their lives, like it just changes the calculus immeasurably, even if that just means a regular schedule at a job where you have health insurance, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so when you get to people who are working in office jobs, knowledge jobs, have enough money, there's something... I, I do think that there's this ingrained precarity still, that even though mm-hmm. you don't think that you're going to be starving or uh, not able to take care of your family, there is a a feeling that everything could disappear. Whether or not that's merited or or logical, Mm -hmm. you still feel this need that if I am not productive all the time, I'm going to start, I'm going to fall off the treadmill.
0: I feel like the overarching narrative is like, this is a game that you have to escape in order to feel safe. Yeah. Like the, the only way to feel safe is to have a big enough windfall or enough savings that effectively you don't have to play anymore. And, you know, and even that I, can be a little bit unstable. But for most people, it feels like that's actually the goal or the or the pipe dream is like, I'm going to do something eventually and get out. Right. <laughs> and then be bored. <laughs>
2: but then be bored because I think most people who have been working in this capacity and right. have the metabolism for this sort of productivity, they don't know how to turn it off.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a vicious cycle, honestly.
2: Yes. Like you go on vacation and you just want to go back and work because that is what is most familiar. (laughs) But I do think it's similar to say like working out in body maintenance Mm. and that people are like, oh, how are you successful? You're so productive. You're so esteemed in your field. You're doing, you're killing it, like whatever. And the way, (laughs) and you know, deep down personally, the reason why you're killing it is because you're working all the time. So if you take your foot off the gas even a little bit, then that could all disappear.
0: Right, right. And so I guess this is a cultural, like a work cultural phenomenon that has has reached a bit of a fever pitch during the pandemic. And as we mm-hmm. come out of it, do you have a sense of what it looks like or becomes in five or 10 years if we don't deal with it now, if we sort of keep our heads down and just try to go back to air quotes, normal?
2: Well, I think right now we're at such an interesting fulcrum point, right? Like we, people are really burnt out right now. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that I think some don't see how they can actually change their feelings about their workplace and the work that they're doing, even with time, even with relaxation, even with a vacation, right? that the only thing that is going to allow them to reset is by quitting and hopefully taking some rest time, having enough cushion to take some legitimate rest and then restarting. And so I think that's what you're seeing a lot with what some people call like the great reshuffling or people who's, you know, there's a New York Times article a couple of weeks ago that was about like the YOLO economy where people are (laughs) quitting their jobs and trying to find new things that are following their passions and that sort of thing. And I really do think that like the pandemic went on long enough that the situation feels intractable for people. They do not see a way out of it. And it's sort of like when you're in a relationship that has turned really toxic and you're like, no amount of therapy can fix this, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
0: Right. And I, one of your recent pieces you were writing about how essentially there's a this lack of talent at the service level of the economy because people finally have some choices for a few minutes yep, uh, to do something else, at, at least as long as it lasts with their, you know, stimulus and better unemployment and, just the sort of lull that we all are experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild to watch that happen.
2: Yeah. And you see that on the level of the service economy, people who are like, I'm not going back to a restaurant. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Like, I
2: don't want to be treated like that at that pay. (laughs) And who have taken the period of the pandemic and if they were receiving unemployment and stimulus money to maybe explore other job opportunities or things that they never had the space and time to really consider But then I think you also see it with people who have been in these knowledge jobs and who have kept their jobs over the last 18 months and through a combination of steady pay and spending less and the things that happen with the stock market have a cushion that allows them to to actually have some choices.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I want to just continue on that thread because it pulls two things together that I'm curious about. One is I have found in my own self data point as one That burnout is quite hard to recognize until someone tells you that you're behaving like a maniac. (laughs) And so I'm curious what you think it is about this last period of time that helped people say, oh, this is happening to me and I'm going to make a change. Like, what do you think that tipping point is, you know, related to the pandemic or just in general?
2: Honestly, I think it's that we had to hang out with our own minds a lot more. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I think that in the past, and I certainly did this when I was trying to avoid my own self diagnosis of burnout, mm-hmm. is you just plan, you're like, oh, I'm going to go on a weekend trip to Portland. Yep. <laughs> right. And doing things distracts you from considering the larger themes of your life, especially if you're not in therapy. Right. <laughs> I that think that's so
1: interesting. I yeah. think
2: that people don't pause and do nothing enough to really allow their actual feelings about what's happening in their lives to kind of reverberate around. It's really uncomfortable to to sit with the idea that like, wow, I have completely burned myself out. I don't like anything that I do. I think of leisure as something to cross off my to-do list. Like this sucks. It's not a comfortable feeling to sit with. But the pandemic, I think really encouraged and facilitated sitting with some of those more difficult realizations.
1: Well, and even to that point, which I think is really brilliant, I feel like especially early in the pandemic before we had new hobbies and routines and ways of being, there was just a level of boredom that most people who are adults in America have not experienced in I don't know how long, maybe ever as adults, where it's just like, you know, we could consume content. But the fact that so much stimulus was removed, just like legally removed and environmentally (laughs) (laughs) removed, it was just like, no, you stay home and be bored. I I think you're absolutely right in terms of the level of metacognition and reflection and self-awareness and just having that feeling of like, oh, geez, it's just me and my own psyche just hanging out on a Sunday afternoon with nowhere <laughs> to go. Maybe I should make some sense of what all of this means. So that's a really, that's a really cool insight that I will hang on to for sure. I
0: have to say, I feel slightly dragged as someone that started a second company during the pandemic. avoiding. Am I being avoided? <laughs> no, I wrote,
2: I wrote another book. I, I published a book <laughs> and then wrote another book. I also, I think that I didn't have as much of that enforced boredom because where I live in my, Montana, there's just there was so much out, outdoors that I had uh-huh. access to, and that actually I think underpins a lot of the desire for people moving into what are called gateway communities to, to outdoor spaces. So places uh-huh. like Missoula, all, but all over Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, uh, Montana, Idaho, where people are like okay, in the future, (laughs) I don't ever want to be bored again, (laughs) right? Right. But I actually, I, one of the ways that I practice solitude, which I like this definition that Cal Newport uses is the absence of other people's minds in your own mind. I love that. Which means that you can actually be around other people, like on the subway and still be practicing solitude. But when I go on walks with my dogs, which I do all the time on the different trails around here, like I am very insistent on not listening to podcasts, on really hanging out in that echoey chamber of my own mind to to feel what I'm feeling.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, that's definitely work that I need to do because I do feel addicted to the drip of information Mm -hmm. and newness and knowledge. And I've actually heard Ezra Klein bitch about this too, like just the ability to turn it off and sit in silence. It feels anti-productive in this age yes. it feels like well, well I, I'm not bettering myself if I'm yes. not ingesting constantly
2: totally and I think podcasts are a huge culprit in this mm-hmm. damn because it. We they, stop? Re- <laughs> they really allow you to fill those interstices in your life that used to be moments of, of quiet with information and culture and the ability to be like, oh yeah, I'm listening to that, right? right. <laughs> yeah. So oftentimes when someone asks me, have you been listening to this new podcast? Before? I say, no, I'm trying to listen to fewer podcasts. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right, right. So along those lines, I mean, burnout is, it's experienced individually, but it's not an individual problem. It's this phenomenon. And so if and when we really get there as a culture that we're ready to tackle it, What would you like to see in in a burnout, you know, attacking labor plan?
2: Ooh, I mean, there's so much. I had a lot more hope before even the presidential nominees were decided, because I think that people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were a little bit more committed to robustly re-knitting the social safety net in a way that would alleviate a lot of the precariousness that is at the heart of so much burnout. Mm-hmm. And even something like relieving student loans would just be an incredible, incredible gift and uh, burnout <laughs> reliever <laughs> to so many people because it it liberates a lot of people to, to say no to the type of work that is exploitative, that is yeah. running them into the ground. And they're otherwise locked into these certain types of jobs because of loans and also because of healthcare that ties us to certain types of work. The other things that I'm thinking about are, you know, and I've written about this elsewhere, but something like making childcare into something that is actually affordable and accessible (laughs) and available, readily available Uh to people. Uh Like The amount of time, money, and stress that seeking out healthcare or childcare causes amongst millennials you know, I think sometimes people don't consider it a millennial problem because they still think millennials are age 21.
0: <laughs> right. Forever. And,
2: instead of the elder millennials are turning 40 this year and half of millennials are, are parents. So I think that there's just so much, this is true for, for Gen X as well, who are dealing with childcare and also elder care. There's so much of this care dynamic that I think we turn a blind eye towards because we still live in a society that assumes that that there's someone at home at all times,
1: mm-hmm.
2: usually the woman,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm I'm going through a process right now where I'm um, I'm not personally caring for an older family member, but I'm helping to manage care and find options and things like that. And much like childcare, what I'm realizing is that much like childcare and capitalism in America, what I'm realizing is that if you are a person who is already incredibly privileged as I am, then you have a lot of options. And if you're not, if you're the person who needs the most options, you have the fewest. Yes. And so, you know, whereas for my husband and I, if one of us had to stay home, we could. A lot of people don't have those sorts of options. And yet he and I are also in a situation where because of Expensive insurance policies and things like that, we have a million choices on the table. And so it just, you know, when you said that about childcare, same with healthcare, same with retirement, et cetera, it just, it does feel like this cycle that we're in where the people who are most in need of support and options are the ones who have the least access.
2: Yeah. And also, even something like retirement, I think that a lot of younger people even if they're working at a good job, there's still this idea that like, I'll never be able to retire. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally.
2: And how does that influence the way that you view your work and your Uh life, right? (laughs) Like, how does that make you think about productivity and where you are in the marathon that is your work life? Like you're just on mile two, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Uh, I think the other thing that I've been thinking about with work is that some of the examples of, nationally implemented work and labor policies in, say, the EU about like, okay, you can't email after 6 p.m., but here's all these exceptions and we can't enforce it and et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it works on a national level. I think that rethinking our labor laws to make room for the different way that we work today, you know, as private contractors and freelance world, like thinking about the power of unions and how to, to grant more power to them, all of that's important. But I also think, especially for this audience and, and for the things that we're thinking about on the level of the corporation, there's just so much that can be done on the level of the organization to think through, how can we create work cultures that actually disincentivize the sort of manic productivity
0: And do you feel like that's possible, or what's the path to that? Because it feels like today, prioritizing work-life balance, if that's even a thing, is, you know, it's either impossible, or it's rude, or it's immoral, or it's sort (laughs) of not, it's just not supported by the system's assumptions about what needs to happen. So do you see a bridge to that, or do you feel like there's actually, does culture divide into two classes of workplace, one that believes in that and one that doesn't? How do you see that?
2: (sighs) I mean, it's just such bad policy. And it's actually really (laughs) silly to work your workers into the ground. You burn through your workers. Sure. Right? So you have to hire new people and you have to onboard them. You have to deal with all of this crap. Like there's just all of this time and effort that is lost. When, if you look at all of these studies about like, oh, okay. So we, if we implement a four day work week and people work less, their work is actually better. Mm -hmm. Like they get more done, but it is so hard in the United States with the primacy of the Protestant work ethic for us to think of working less as working better
1: hmm Yeah. And, and along that line, it's such a narrow focus and scope of what work is. Yes. I mean, Aaron and I were in a call this morning where we were talking to a group of people from a client who are on a transformation journey, and they were asking us really tough questions about how to make time for learning about transformation because the way that their work is structured and built and managed and you know incentivized basically says that learning isn't work right so it's so you know it's it's both the quantity it's the quality and it's the activity that in in my opinion and it sounds like in yours needs to be refactored and redefined because the idea that knowledge workers don't need any time for their <laughs> brain to recuperate or to learn anything or to read anything or to have adjacent or tangential conversations like It's, it's so, it's just so ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. What is
0: the, what is the time tracking code for learning or building knowledge?
1: (laughs) We're thinking like the knowledge workers are not meant to think they're just meant to send emails.
2: And I think that's why we obsess over things like inbox zero is because communication feels like something that there is, you know, a code for, there is a very clear way to evidence that you are working and it is by frantically responding to emails to try to get through your inbox Whereas that's just busy work, right? Like there's not doing work. It's, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I use this word that John Herman, who's a technology columnist at the New York Times uses, which is LARPing your job, live action role-playing your job. Mm -hmm. Like that is what frantic emailing and over meeting, (laughs) like having way too many meetings is. And the, the sort of value that you get from those long periods of, you know, going on a walk and actually thinking, right? Or yes. just like starting at a sentence, just like being with some information or learning or even just being in the community or being around people who are different than you. Like there are so many ways that we grow and bring knowledge to an organization that are difficult to describe. And the companies that I think are actually really changing and are uh, growing in really interesting and innovative ways are ones that have let go of that very narrow understanding of what productivity looks
1: like. Mm. Do you have a couple of examples in mind of what you see that you're a fan of?
2: Well, I do think that companies that uh, are piloting these four-day work weeks are seeing a lot of success. And thus far, there's this famous pilot of the four-day work week that Microsoft did in Japan that's kind of the most high profile. But there are lots of other examples across the world of companies that are doing this. The company, I, I spent a lot of time pre-pandemic talking with a guy who wrote a book about the experiment at his company, which is a trust company, which is kind of like like wills and trusts uh-huh. uh-huh. in New Zealand, which is a very staid and like old-fashioned New Zealand company. And they made it work in like an incredible way. And I love that example because I think people often just think, oh, this is something that is only available to companies that are tech companies, companies that are small and that are already working in remote and innovative ways. But, you know, they were a company where everyone came to work every day, where they still have things like company cars, you know, like all the sort of old fashioned stuff. But they thought, okay, what if we just make this commitment To doing our work smarter, with more efficiency and more direction, and spend less time goofing around on the internet, right, when you're trying to just be in the office from nine to five. And all of these metrics of productivity and happiness and time spent on like New Zealand's most popular websites, like all of those things, (laughs) we're trending in the right direction, And I was going to write about this right before the pandemic. And then like somehow talking about a four-day work week during the pandemic seemed very silly. But as the pandemic went on, it seemed more and more important, right? And I think that a a lot of companies now could see how, hey, what if we do allow our workers to do these really concentrated sections of work on their own timelines and take the rest of their time to, to slot in the rest of their lives, right? If they're Uh still doing the same amount of work and they're not burning out, that's a dream scenario.
1: Yeah, that's right. And to that point, as a person who has been, I I think we're past the point of calling it an experiment. I started experimenting with a four-day work week at the beginning of 2021. So we're six months in and it's just, it's sticking now. I think the other reality when you define work as broadly and give it as much of a role and as much importance as it actually has in most of our lives is that most of the big ideas that I have about work happen on Wednesdays when I'm Mm -hmm. not at work now. So the other four days of the week are, I would say, a lot more efficient because I have this built-in self-accountability. Where if I don't get my shit done, then I have to work on Wednesday, and that totally. bumps me out. Not because I have a boss or a person who's going to make me, but just because. So that's a really great forcing function to like not, you know, just hop onto the real real and buy myself a bag or something, but instead just finish, <laughs> finish the sow that needs to go out. But also. Again, because we're not actually machines though we are often treated as machines at work, it's not like on Wednesday I don't have ideas or nothing mm-hmm. occurs to me while I'm like going on a long swim or gardening or recovering a piece of furniture or whatever. In fact, that's where all the good shit happens. Yep. So, it you know, it seems some of these things I think seem like radical ideas when you talk to people, but if we were more thoughtful about about what work is, then we wouldn't have innovation crises in work because people would have space to think about stuff and to come (laughs) up with innovations.
2: Totally, totally. You know how people talk about how like, oh, my best ideas come to me in the shower. In the shower, of course. The reason they come to you in the shower, yes, is also because your phone's not there, right? Like you are just hanging out with your own mind. And I think if you can think of that day off as time in the shower, Mm That is a, it's a really wonderful way of thinking about it. And I also just think it contributes to, you know, any companies that are like, we're devoted to like civic investment, sure. right? That they're like, like we want to be part of the community and that sort of thing. It's really, really, really hard to carve that out if you don't have a day of the week where you can have that sort of commitment available to you. Like I always think about pre-COVID, the food bank here in Missoula, which does really amazing work, they require, if you want to volunteer, you need to commit to a three-hour shift every week. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing that I, in my pre-COVID life, just felt was impossible to, to say. I Yes, every mm-hmm. Thursday from nine to 12, I will be there to do the shift at the food bank. That's so little time. But when you have this feeling that you need to be working all the time and any time that you're not working is lost productivity and letting your foot off the gas, then it feels like a commitment that you just can't make. And that's true for volunteering in so many capacities, but also just like being a part of your neighbor's lives or volunteering for schools, you know, all different sorts of ways that we actually do build community. You need time. You need like guaranteed time to make that happen.
1: So many of you recently have left us reviews and ratings, and I just wanted to say that we really, really appreciate it. You know, I make this request and this call to action every single week. Thank you for those who have taken up the mantle. And for those of you who haven't, but love this show, please do so this week. Thanks.
0: So I want to, I want to zoom back in now and talk a little bit about the distinction between boundaries and guardrails. Mm because you talk a little bit about this in, in your work the idea that setting <laughs> setting boundaries is bullshit because they place onus on the individual and and you know how a guardrail might be different so how do you think about that evolution or that distinction and what kinds of examples are exciting to you there
2: So I think anyone who has tried to cultivate quote unquote, work-life balance will be familiar with the strategy of boundaries, which are, <laughs> you're like, okay, I won't check my email after this time, or it won't be available after this, or I don't, I won't talk about this. Like, here are the places I'm trying to set up fences around mm-hmm. my life in order mm-hmm. to cordon work into like a different pasture, essentially. Mm-hmm. But the thing about work and like you can use so many different metaphors with this. Like sometimes I use the metaphor of a a runaway truck, right, going down <laughs> a mountain pass, or or I just used pasture. Like it could be just like a really angry cow in the next pasture. Like they will trample those boundaries. Work will trample those boundaries, and they are very difficult unless you are incredibly senior in your organization and also have the privileges usually of your gender and your race (laughs) to say no, right? To keep Uh those boundaries. It is an incredible amount of work to continually be rebuilding those boundaries and and protecting them, being vigilant with them. And I think when we leave the onus of boundaries on the individual, they will almost always fail. Uh And then it will be the individual's fault for not being vigilant enough to maintain those boundaries. Right. 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 So the other way that I want to think about it, and I talk about this a little bit in our forthcoming book that I wrote with my partner, Charlie Borsell, who is a um, tech writer, is instead of thinking about boundaries, think of guardrails. So the thing about guardrails, if we go back to the metaphor of the runaway truck on the mountain pass, is that the guardrails are there to protect everyone. They are maintained, not by the individual, like not by the person who just happens to be driving down the mountain pass and they're like Nissan mm-hmm. Versa, but but by the state. And I think in the United States, since at least in this current moment, we are very adverse to having the state maintain those boundaries, th- those guardrails. You can think of the guardrails as either maintained by your labor union or by the company at large. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you turn it into something that is a group responsibility that is there to protect everyone and not just the responsibility of the individual, it turns them into something that's much more robust and actually capable of protecting against that runaway truck of work.
1: And what are some examples of guardrails you would love to see more companies try on for size? I think, so
2: one about email and communication is that you can put in a very, very strong rule that is not just discouraged, but it's actively like it is something that you will get talked to about in, say, your review or from your manager. If you communicate during hours when people are not expected to be working at your company uh-huh. and that includes email or Slack or phone, whatever, I totally understand that some people have different rhythms of work life (laughs) but there are so many tools available to us (laughs) in order to schedule those right Uh Uh so like i always use gmail's scheduling function so anytime after 4 p.m mountain time which is 6 p.m eastern time i always delay send so it just sends the next morning at 8 a.m my time i also have an email signature this is sort of an individual thing but something that a company could adopt that I'm trying to use to spread to like my entire world of connections, which is that like just very clear my working hours are not necessarily your working hours and do not feel any compulsion to respond to this email immediately. I think the other thing that you can think about in terms of PTO and I've heard of various CEOs and, and managers who are trying to really cultivate this practice is being very public about when they are taking PTO and also really maintaining the boundaries of not checking in, not being the person who's like, oh, hey, just checking in just for a second from vacation, you know, like responding to some sort of thread or, <laughs> or sneaking in on a, on a Slack thread, really actually modeling the sort of behaviors that you hope other people at the company will also espouse during PTO.
0: Yeah, it's funny, all this kind of communal guard railing is important in particular, because I find that I can't even maintain my own boundaries because of how addictive the pull is totally. And so I almost need like, spaces and times and rituals that that help nudge me in that direction through a social contract or through being observed or being present. Because it is Yeah, like left to our own devices, I I see the, you know, the siren song of the phone being pretty strong. I mean, you you know, you said the shower is great, because we can't have our phones in there. And it's like, uh, a lot of phones are waterproof. Now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I do. I yeah. I just appreciate the idea of like uh, this becoming a social phenomenon and a norming thing rather mm-hmm. than a personal discipline thing. Because as we all know from you know behavioral economics, like that stuff usually doesn't work out great. T-
2: totally. Yeah. To make it like deeply uncool to 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 be the person who sends that email. I even mm-hmm. think about it here in Montana. There is just not that same practice of looking at your phone while you're waiting in the grocery store, mm-hmm. which when I was in New York, every single time that you were waiting for anything, everyone had their phones out.
0: It's gotta be. Gotta.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. The PTO thing in particular is something that, that really resonates. And Aaron and I were on a call earlier and I... I've had this metaphor kicking around in my brain for a while, but I think with with this conversation around guardrails, like there are the things that we're constraining or we're limiting, right? Like the time in which we do certain activities. And then there are the other things where we are expressly making a space and inviting people to use it. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that and the and the metaphor that I used this morning is there's a difference between me giving you a gift certificate to a really fancy restaurant that you actually could afford that has a deadline on it and you of your own volition making a reservation and going to eat that meal and pay for it. And the likelihood is just much higher if there is an express container for you to step into. And that's one of the things I think about in terms of things like unlimited PTO. It's like, that's fine, but is there a different, is there some kind of container that says, yeah, but for real, you should take at least this much a quarter, because mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't have the wherewithal or the discipline or the drive or or too much fear or too much FOMO or whatever, whatever is up for you, if you don't have the ability personally to make that space, is it our responsibility to carve it out? Right. Well, and I
2: think that the company, if they are enforcing and trying to really encourage taking like mandatory PTO essentially... They have to also create scenarios in which someone doesn't feel like when they take that PTO that they are coming back to a fire right. alarm. <laughs> of course. Right? Of
0: course.
2: And I think that yeah. like that's a difficult discussion to have because so many companies are slightly understaffed right <laughs> and yes. so you have to ha- have a posture of slight overstaffing in mm-hmm. order to make actual leave and that includes PTO but it also includes parental leave right or grieving leave or all sorts of different types of leave that i think companies want to companies who are trying to be compassionate and human in terms of how they they interact with their employees they want to be able to have that but if you don't have a scenario set up in which when someone leaves there are others to take up that slack mm-hmm. that and it doesn't create like piles of resentment you know <laughs> <laughs> that and and that takes real thoughtfulness in order to to cultivate that situation
0: well, thoughtfulness is in short supply. So as kind of a, a place to land the plane here, your forthcoming book is tentatively titled Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home, which seems extremely timely. What <laughs> what big problems did you aim to identify in the book? And what are some of those bigger promises and, and get that kind of more human and equitable future of work that you had in mind?
2: So... Charlie and I sold this book during the summer of the pandemic. And I think the way that we framed it at the time was really, we've had experience with working from home because we moved from New York to to Montana. I was working remotely for BuzzFeed. Charlie was working remotely for the New York Times and really saw how without guardrails, (laughs) we just transformed into people who worked all the time, right? Mm -hmm. How that remote structure liberated us to work all the time. And I think when the pandemic hit and a lot of people were thrown into that scenario very abruptly, it felt like a pretty quick, like obvious way for us to talk about some of our experiences in trying to resist the the relentlessness of work and, and the call of productivity. It transformed over the course of the reporting and the writing Uh into something that is far less focused on our individual experiences and so much more focused on the thousand people who wrote to us about their work from home experiences and how Uh they hope to change it. But also we spoke to people from dozens of companies about what they're trying to do moving forward. Some of these companies I think that have been profiled a lot uh, are ones that have been remote for a long time, right? And have figured Uh out some stuff. And then a lot, too, though, is about what this new reality over the next couple of years is going to be, which is not, for most companies, is not fully remote, right? It's not a fully distributed solution. It is a hybrid solution that is predicated on on actual flexibility. And I think companies are really struggling to figure out what that's going to look like. And, (laughs) you know, it'd be great if the book could come out right now. That's not how publishing timelines work. It is copy-edited, ready to go, but, you know, that's... It's coming out in December. And so hopefully at that time, there will be people who are at companies who have tried to make it work, mm-hmm. have struggled and are like, okay, we need some help.
0: So you can we'll count on ahead.
1: that. <laughs> yeah, there's no question. <laughs> Let them touch the hot stove once and then they'll read your book. Yes.
0: Oh my gosh. There's so much learning ahead on the hybrid front. I can't wait to see. all the well, different- and,
1: and that's the thing is if your company has a posture
2: of there's so much learning Right? We're going to try stuff and we're going to iterate and we're going to figure out what works. I think those companies are going to succeed. It's mm-hmm. the ones who have this hard line like, we are all going back into the office or right. we surveyed you once and here's our plan and this is what it's going to be. Like Those yeah. are the, the companies that I think are going to really struggle and are also going to have a lot of attrition.
0: Don't do things with one grand mandate. Seems like uh, a very fitting place on Brave New Work to bring things to a close. (laughs) So, Anne, where can our listeners find out more about you and your books and your work?
2: Uh, You can find my newsletter, Culture Study. You can just Google my name or you could Google Culture Study. I have somehow made it the top SEO all
0: on my own. (laughs) Google me. Nice.
1: Well done. Um, Or on Twitter, I'm Anne Helen. Fantastic. And thanks so much for coming today. We would love to have you back. This was a ton of fun. This
2: was such a smart and thoughtful conversation and I really appreciate it. And both of you.
0: Awesome. A quick tip of the hat as always to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.